This morning, in our study in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to look at an incident where faith is challenged by adversity. Uh, and I want us to take a, a kind of a personal inventory. We're going to talk a lot about our personal lives uh, in, in view of that story to see what we might be able to learn, um, particularly when we are in a storm of life. Um, let's go to the text, to, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. And let's see how this event begins to unfold. In Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with, him, with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, right before this, when you look at the text, Jesus has been teaching virtually nonstop. And I can tell you, that is exhausting. And I suspect that Jesus has just physically whipped and emotionally wiped out. And so Jesus got into a boat and he said to his disciples, let's go to the other side. Now, remember that because that's going to be very important later on. Now look at verse 37. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now the Sea of Galilee is situated at 628 feet below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains that are gouged with deep ravines. Uh, here are some pictures that Brian Conaway gave me from one of his trips. Uh, the first picture that you're going to see is of Mount Arbel on the west-northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Some historians think that Arbel was the likely mountain where Jesus prayed all night before he selected the 12 apostles. The next two pictures are from the top of Mount Arbel. Uh, the ravines off the mountain serve as gigantic funnels to focus whirling winds down onto the lake without warning. I want you to look at some parallel accounts here of what is happening. Uh, Matthew says, And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Luke's gospel puts it this way, And as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. So can you see the scene in your mind's eye? They push out from the shore, probably on a calm lake, and then pow, they're overcome with a vicious storm. Doesn't that sort of describe life? You know, you're going along, life is going smoothly, clear water, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, life serves up a bummer in the form of a storm, a broken relationship, a deep disappointment, a debilitating illness, a wave of depression, a bitter experience, whatever. But that's life. In his best-selling book, The Road Less Traveled, Dr. Scott Peck begins with these words, Life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It's a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. What does Peck mean? I think it is that many live with the myth that storms 
shouldn't happen. Or if they do, they shouldn't happen to me. My marriage should not be at risk. It shouldn't be my position at work that's eliminated. It shouldn't be my son or daughter caught in underage drinking or using drugs. And the list just goes on and on. You know, as Christians, sometimes we ask, well, what is this abundant life that Jesus talked about? I mean, I thought that meant no problems, no stress, no difficulties, no calamities. Peck says that when we're willing to accept the premise that life is difficult, then we're able to begin to deal with life and its difficulties. In other words, we won't be blindsided by troubles that come along the way. Now, here's a similar perspective uh, to share with you. It comes from the pen of Henry Nouwen, one of the leading spiritual writers and theologians in the 20th century. Uh, I shared this perspective with you last fall when we were in our study of the, the letter of 1 Peter in dealing with suffering, but it bears repeating because it fits into this whole scene. Nouwen wrote, Many people suffer because of the false supposition on which they have based their lives. That supposition is that there should be no fear or loneliness, no confusion or doubt. But these sufferings can only be dealt with creatively when they are understood as wounds integral to our human condition. Therefore, ministry is a very confronting service. It does not allow people to live with illusions of immortality and wholeness. It keeps reminding others that they are mortal and broken, but also that with the recognition of this condition, liberation starts. Let me pose a couple questions to you. How do you view the storms in your life? Maybe you're in one now, maybe you're just out of one, or you think it might be coming down the road. I think we do it in a lot of different ways. I think sometimes the storms of life simply create annoyance. They do me. You know, a disruption in our daily routine, in our daily lives. Um, sometimes it's a sense of doom or foreboding. Uh, I, I struggle with this sometimes, thinking particularly of, of our grandchildren and, and particularly of our sweet little Haley that a year ago now was at the front end of having five brain surgeries. And every once in a while I find myself this, this fear that wants to come in of, oh no, are we going to get a call? They're on the way to Children's Hospital you know what I mean? Um, sometimes it's simply a questioning of God's power, of his presence, of his purpose in your life. Or, or when we're involved in storms, sometimes it's feeling that God has abandoned you and that you are left to face this storm all by yourself. Here's another question. Why is it so difficult for some Christians to honestly accept this reality of storms? Maybe even you. I think it challenges the often superficial, sometimes unbiblical view we have of God and his purposes. You know, Jesus came to bring us an abundant life. And we interpret that to mean that there should not be any problems. We should be exempt from the crises and crushing circumstances of life. Jay Kessler, who once headed the Christian student organization Young Life, I remember hearing him once say that many Christians view their Christianity as a trump card. And so trouble comes down the street and you play your trump card and it jumps over your place. And so the little girl next door gets leukemia, not yours. 
Uh, your neighbor loses his job, not you. Your neighbor's marriage falls apart, but not yours. And we fail to remember that we are fallen people living in a fallen world. And a part of that is that it's a world filled with consequences and choices, some wise, some unwise. And sometimes things just happen for which there's no explanation. And we begin to think, well, why us? Why should that happen to me? You know, why are we the ones that are dealing with this situation? You know, how come we don't get the breaks uh, that it seems others do with their seemingly perfect lives? Now, of course, in reality, that's pretty much an illusion. Because we have no idea of the issues that others are facing that we view their perfect life. Because we're looking at us, what's happening internally, and comparing it to somebody externally, and we just can't see. Well, we're going to go back to the story. Now, lots of people are visual learners, not just auditory learners. So uh, let's watch a video representation of this story, what's happening. Look at Mark 4, verse 38. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? First, look where Jesus is. He's asleep. He's so exhausted that he crashes at the back of the boat. And then the disciples. I, I wonder what their mental and emotional state was at this point. I mean, for one thing, I think they're scared spitless. This is no small storm squall. Remember, some of these men were seasoned sailors. This wouldn't be their first rodeo. They've been in these storms before. But the master is nowhere to be found until they realize that he's fast asleep. And I suspect that they're busy bailing water, and then all of a sudden they realize Jesus wasn't on the bucket brigade with them. And so they rush back to Jesus, and they shake him awake. Did you notice that their question to Jesus is not, Lord, are you going to help us bail water? It is, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing. Lord, don't you care? Can you relate to that? Has there been a time in your life that you could remember uh, maybe feeling or asking that same question, Lord, where are you? Can't you see I'm going down? Don't you care? You know, some of you might be asking that very question today as you're facing a storm in your life, some adversity, whatever it might be. Well, when we ask this question, what lies behind them? Well, it might be one of several things. One is it simply might be an inadequate view of God. That underneath the surface, if we dig a little bit, we'd say, well, I'm not sure God is powerful enough to help me. Maybe God doesn't care. He's got other things about which he's more concerned than me. I called God and he just put me on hold. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah records God's retort to a similar view expressed by the Israelites. Look at this from Isaiah 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, 
the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Eugene Peterson, writing in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, says the only serious mistake we can make when illness comes, when anxiety threatens, when conflict disturbs our relationship with others, is to conclude that God has gotten bored looking after us and has shifted his attention to a more exciting Christian. Or that God has become disgusted with our meandering obedience and decided to let us fend for ourselves for a while. Or that God has gotten too busy fulfilling prophecy in the Middle East to take time now to sort out the complicated mess we've gotten ourselves into. That is the only serious mistake we can make. An inadequate view of God. Or maybe it's a wrong view of trials and God's role in them. Hold on for a moment because I want to throw a thought at you here. You know, God allows difficulties into our lives for the purpose of drawing us to himself and building in us the character of Christ. I, that's what I see all through the pages of the New Testament. I, I don't think God is primarily interested in your comfort as much as he is your character. But be careful that that does not skew your view of God or the rightness of his actions. Let me ask a question. Did God care when his own son was suffering? Of course. But there was a greater purpose to his life than just comfort, than Jesus experiencing the abundant life. So I want to give you some, 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 some suggestions. Again, just, just trying to be as practical as I can today. Uh, number one is guard your assessment of God. The danger is that you will form a wrong opinion about God. You will draw the wrong conclusions about God. Because in times of difficulty, you will be tempted to question God's character. And that would be wrong. Charles Spurgeon, the famous 19th century English preacher, said it well, when we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust God's heart. That comes from building an intimate relationship with the Lord. Second, be willing to suspend judgment. Or to put it another way, resolve to trust God. Oz Guinness, in his book, In Two Minds, The Dilemma of Doubt, writes that there are times when our trust must go on alone with or without understanding. He says at such times, if the Christian's faith is to be itself and let God be God, it must suspend judgment and say, Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. Later in his book, he writes, Face to face with mystery, the faith that understands why it has come to trust, must trust where it has not come to understand. Faith does not know why in terms of the immediate, but it knows why it trusts God, who knows why in terms of the ultimate. And this goes so much against our grain, doesn't it? Because we think we're entitled to answers to everything. We think that God should explain everything, send holy writ down to us and tell us why things are happening. But that's not life. That's not the choice that he's made in his wisdom and how he relates to us. 
the next thing is turn your why question into a how question. And she gave me a book to read that was passed along to her by a friend. Uh, it's written by Laura Story, a worship leader, recording artist. Her life took an unexpected turn when her husband of about 18 months was diagnosed with a brain tumor, a condition with no cure to, to, to fix his or restore his short-term memory, his eyesight, and other consequences. But she makes what I think is a profound observation and suggestion that if you will bear with me, I want to read it to you. The book is titled, When God Doesn't Fix It. And she writes this, Questions and Doubts. Plague my mind more than I care to admit. The single word, why, haunts me the most. Like a stuck needle on a vinyl record, there are days when it replays over and over again. In those dark moments when I'm obsessed with finding out why, I'm sure that even if I just had an answer to my question, I'd feel better. Even on those occasions when I do get an answer, it rarely leads to satisfaction and always leads to more questions. I'm not the only one who feels this way. Everyone wants to know why bad things happen. When I lead worship at a church or perform in a concert, hurting people come up afterward and share their stories with me. And each person's story comes with its own list of unanswered whys. Here are some I've heard dozens, and in some cases, hundreds of times. Why did my husband commit suicide? Why did my daughter die so young? Why did he start using drugs? Why can't I have children? Why was he born disabled? Why did she get sick? Why did I lose my job? Why did she betray me? Why did he molest my child? In the midst of broken circumstances, we ask why. We're not the first to ask, and we won't be the last. Ever since God gave us the ability to ask questions, we've been asking that question of him, why, God, why? Then she goes on to tell the story that we find in the Gospel of John chapter 9. And it's the story you call Jesus and his disciples who are walking by and they see a man who has been blind from birth. And they asked Jesus a question that was debated among the rabbis of the day. Who sinned that this man should be born blind? His parents or himself? Somehow in a, in a prenatal way. And then Jesus goes on to talk about what it is. And so out of that, Laura writes this. The disciples asked, why was this man born blind? In this question, they were asking why for all of us. But in his answer, Jesus didn't respond directly to the why. Instead, he changed the why question to how. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. She goes on to say, how might this man's blindness be used to reveal the work of God? Just as surely as he turned water into wine, Jesus turned the disciples' blame-seeking why question into a God-seeking how question. Man asks why, Jesus asks how. 
Man asks, why did this happen? Jesus asks, how might my Father's glory be displayed through the situation? The answer to why doesn't help us heal. But knowing that God's glory can be displayed, even in the brokenness of our lives, gives us hope despite our circumstances. I promise you will find more purpose and joy in your life if you set aside the why and begin to ask how. How does my story fit into God's greater story of redemption? Even when we can't immediately see how our story fits into God's story of redemption, Scripture promises that it always does. In the Bible, I see a picture of all things working together for good, a good that, frankly, I sometimes don't understand. Somehow, God mourns the death of a three-year-old, yet he also uses that sweet baby's death to bring glory to himself. If you don't understand how he can do both, well, join the club. I don't know either. But that's because I'm looking at it from my perspective. Without seeing from God's perspective, I cannot answer how that story or any other story, including mine, fits into his overall story. But the Bible does reveal to us that sometimes God uses things he hates. Things like cancer, divorce, suicide, addiction, death, and more to accomplish the things he loves. He does this regularly and faithfully. It's only when we bring our pain to him that we can find our dwelling in him. However, when we play the blame game, we're focusing on everyone but him. When God doesn't fix it. Let me give you another suggestion. Find a listening ear. Someone you trust someone who won't judge or try to placate you with some pious, pious platitudes. You, know, you also don't need friends like Job had, you know, who came alongside him when he was suffered and then tried to get him to admit his sin because surely he must be in sin because these things were happening to him. And they tried to fault, uh, fault find with Job. And that's not what you need. You need someone who will listen, who will care, who will pray, Maybe someone who's walked a similar road as you. Someone who's had struggles in their life. Listen, folks, you're not alone. You aren't the only one who's struggled in their marriage. Who has agonized over the consequences of wrong decisions. Who's seen their children get into trouble. Or who's suffered at work for standing for what's right. You're not alone. And then release it to God for his purposes. There are many reasons I believe Scripture gives for why God allows difficulties into our lives. Some of those reasons include creating more dependency upon Him rather than upon ourselves, weaning us from depending upon others and things rather than Him. And then He does it for the purpose of building character. I want you to see Paul's perspective in his letter to the Romans in this regard. Paul writes, and we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. 
There are a couple of important words in there. First, the word tribulation. It simply means trials or pressures. It's the things of everyday life. It's those regular storms that pop up. The word perseverance in the language of the New Testament means literally to remain or abide under. Now, what's usually our first thought when we get under stress, when we're in the midst of some trial or feel under crushing, crushing pressure? Yikes! How do I get out from underneath here? But Paul seems to be saying that perhaps God wants to use the situation to accomplish something related to your character. Maybe it's to develop patience. Uh, maybe it's to teach you some lesson or, or to lead to greater dependence upon and trust in Christ. Let me add another reason to the list of God's purposes in our lives. It's using our experiences to minister to others. This is what Paul was indicating in his letter to the Corinthians when he wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, get this, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we are comforted ourselves by God. God can use even the worst in your life to minister to others. Maybe it's not right away. Maybe it's down the road. But he can use that. Let's go back to our text in Mark 4. Let's see what happens in this turbulent sea. I'm reading now at verse 39. Jesus awoke. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Okay, you've got to drag out of your memories here from earlier. What were Jesus' instructions to the disciples as they got into the boat? Let's go to the other side. Not, let's go out into the middle and drown. At this point, Jesus does not answer the disciples, nor does he address their concerns. He simply stands and he rebukes the wind. The disciples must have been shocked. But why? They'd he seen him heal the sick of all kinds of diseases. They'd watched him as he'd cast out demons. You know, they'd seen his great power displayed, and yet here they were in utter fear for their lives. And Jesus turns to them and he says, why are you so timid? Where's your faith? We're not so unlike the disciples, are we? We experience his grace and his forgiveness. You know, we see him answer prayers. We see the changes that he brings about in our lives and our attitudes and in our actions. And then we run into a storm, a difficulty, and we begin to act like an agnostic, or worst, an atheist. Been there, done that. Jesus would rightly ask us, where is your faith? Now, I think part of the problem comes in the definition that we use of God's deliverance. What does it mean that God delivers? I think we need to think on two planes here, folks. One is ultimate spiritual. Sometimes God's deliverance will be in an ultimate sense. 
And so as we pray for a loved one with cancer or another terminal disease, God answers our prayer by bringing ultimate healing. He, he brings that loved one home to be with him. Did God answer your prayer for healing? Yes, he did. Not the way maybe you wanted, but in the way that would bring him most glory. Precious in the sight is the death of his saints, the, the Old Testament declares. Here's a question you need to ask yourself. Does God know what he's doing? That'll, that'll separate the sheep from the goats right there, folks. Uh, is it possible that God has a better way? That he has a better answer? That he has a better solution? But there's also the plane of the temporal, of, of the physical. You know, God gives the promise of his grace. And he calls on us to trust him, to continue to believe that he will work everything according to his divine purposes. But here's the catch. He just might not work on your timetable because there's more that he wants to accomplish than immediate deliverance. Remember what Paul said? Through perseverance comes proven character. We love these words in Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to him and he will do it. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. And neither can you. David goes on and says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. How do you do that? How do you do that? Let me suggest these things. Keep trusting. Be willing to continue engaging God through prayer even if and when you don't understand. Well, that can be hard, can't it? Because we just want to hang the phone up. But we need to continue to engage with God over this thing. Go to the Psalms. Read how David did this over and over again when the circumstances of his, of his life, to be honest, stunk. Maybe that's why we're drawn to the Psalms times of difficulty. Second is keep doing good. Doing what you know is right. Live according to how you know God wants you to live. And keep connected. David says dwell in the land. Oftentimes what we tend to do when the storms come, we go into isolation when that's exactly the opposite of what you need. Stay connected. Don't run off. Don't go looking for relief somewhere else. Don't head for the hills to hide out. Um, we need the courage to hang in there to stay in the fight and do it with other people who love you and care for you and will help you through that. This is where our faith is tested, where it's revealed is in the storms of life. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you know our lives from beginning to end. I thank you that you know every person in this room and you know exactly what we're going to face this week. May we resolve the best that we know how to continue to walk with you and trust you even in the storms that might come. And when they do come, may we fall on you and depend on you and trust in you and stay engaged with you, believing the promises that are in your word that you will not fail. And so we thank you that you are a God who loves us and cares for us as a heavenly father and we entrust our lives to you in Christ's name, amen.